What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponko is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponko if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, um, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just, they won all the awards because Ponko is great and Ponko is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out chasemonspodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back on a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Jeff Perlman, someone who mailed me his book months and months ago that I've read on Donald Trump and the USFL. He's written books on Favre and the Raiders, and just he is uh, an alum of Sports Illustrated. Rest in peace. Uh, Jeff, good afternoon, sir. We just talked about before we started recording uh, just the how are you question, so I'm going to avoid that at the present time, but uh, I, I'm not sure what I can ask you instead uh, as a, a simple pleasantry to start off this podcast. I, what is the alternative here right now? I was shocked you said Sports Illustrated Wrestling. So I would not say it is. I'd say it's like, I'd be saying like, rest in peace if your 85-year-old grandma is on a ventilator and someone was like, hey, rest in peace. I wouldn't say it's dead yet. It's just really not in a good place. I guess maybe it's just the cynical nature, but and just the amount of friends that I had there and what's gone on and then just the latest layoffs yeah. and what's going on. Like, it's just and honestly, like a website is rest in peace for me if you get the because I have just a, a bunch of Google Sheets that I use to organize all the stuff that I'm reading and all the different podcast guests and all that kind of stuff. But I have a strike through with all my SI stuff and it, it pained me to do it. But like I, I used to read it every day, obviously, like so many other sports fans. And it's just not not a thing like i'm not gonna be going there it's dead spin yeah. all of them like they can come back and they can adjust but it just 
I, I have my doubts that it'll ever be the same. No, oh, it'll never be the same. There's not you don't have to have a doubt. I'm, you could even argue I got there late. I got there in '96, and it was a who's who, and it was considered it was like being. I always use this analogy when I got hired at SI and I became a, a, a writer, like a writer writer. They'd have a they'd have these holiday gatherings every year. They'd fly in from all over the country, every writer. And I always say I was like late on the dream team. You know, it was like Michael Jordan over there and uh, Clyde Drexler over there and Patrick Ewing over there. And I was like the scrub just in the room, thrilled to be around my idols. And it's such a, just the nature of the business now, I guess. But it's so, I mean, all those giants of journalism um, in one place writing for one magazine. It was just golden time that can't be brought back. Do you think there could be a resurgence at some point? Like this is something that I wanted to ask you about, but based on what you've seen over the years and your experience, do you, do you see some sort of online publication resurgence after this is all done and then in the coming decade? Or do you think these are just all places that are going, going away forever and we'll never see a lot of new publications prop up to, to replace them or reinvigorate them? I mean, you're certainly not going to see print. Um, it's possible that some, I mean, I feel like, the athletic has been very encouraging. Uh, what the New York mm-hmm. times is doing online is very encouraging. What the Washington post is doing online, Wall Street journal, um, is encouraging and they have models. I mean, the, if you could go back in time, if I could go back in time, I would scream at everyone not to give away their content for free. I mean, that was yep. the, that was just the thing that broke it was all these news. I mean, I was briefly at Newsday and Newsday used to be a great New York newspaper. It truly was. It was a great New York newspaper. And somewhere when the dawn of the internet came along and all these newspapers, they started giving away their material for free online. And once you gave, once all these places gave away their stuff for free online, it was over and you couldn't put that back in the bottle. And then you tried and consumers were upset. How come you're not giving me, how come I have to pay now? Why, why, what's up with that? And you lost all these loyal readers and you just can't return to it. So maybe there's a model Maybe there's some way to do it online. Maybe there's this way of making a ton of money. I think the athletic is as close as we're getting right now with hiring a lot of huge writers and uh, there's something there that's working. But I, are you ever going to have SI, a dream team of writers in one room, flown in from around the country, eating at five-star restaurants and you know, staying at hotels that cost 350 a night and, and in a way being stars in their own light you know, and, and athletes dreaming to talk to them uh no that's over i wonder with patreon and just if you're not on with the athletic or you're not on with one the ringer or the limited number of opportunities for sports writers now i wonder if the alternative might just be like oh here's this awesome baseball writer who has a five dollar month website where you can get all of his baseball takes but he gets access and teams start giving access to Mm -hmm. certain writers who have a certain uh, level of following and they're professional and they can trust them but like maybe that's it where everybody they don't like the stars that you're talking about don't work for the publications anymore they just do their own thing and make it their own business just like a series of entrepreneurial sports writers that just do it all themselves I, I, it's more difficult not having um, that kind of backing but I wonder if that's like the maybe the next avenue I mean it's definitely you see people doing it I mean uh one example is Paul Kaharski used to cover the Tennessee Titans for yeah. ESPN. 
you know, now has his own Titan site, and I think he draws pretty good traffic, and he charges X amount, and he has different levels of subscribers, and you know, blah blah blah. And um, yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's sustainable for five thousand sports writers across the country to do it because um, mm-hmm. they're limited markets and let me know. But I mean, I, I just, it's a lot of right now. It just feels like now it feels like there's a lot of taking an idea, throwing it against the wall, hoping it sticks. And some of the ideas are sticking a little better than others. Like ad revenue, online ad revenue was an idea for a long time and it just kind of fell off the wall. Like Sports Illustrated was not getting good money for people to advertise on their websites. So the athletic comes along and says, how about instead of that, we're not going to have any ads at all. We're just going to charge for subscriptions and what subscribers are going to get are the absolute, is the absolute best coverage out there. Um, and that seems to be sticking a little bit. And maybe that's, and then the New York Times comes along and it says, okay, we're going to give you our regular great coverage. And we're just going to have these insanely um, precisely done online sort of interactive graphics and interactive sort of models. And you can plug it like, and that's just sticking to the wall. So there are certain things that are working, certain things that aren't working. I don't know if it's working for guys like Paul or not, but it's certainly a viable idea. I um I don't know. It's just so much uncertainty. <laughs> you, like you said, it's just throwing stuff at the wall. Um, you talked about when you first started and just being around your idols and just being a a guy on just a, being a wallflower during that point. Do you think media access with the no fans, if we do like a full, and this is something we'll get to in a second in Major League Baseball, but if sports leagues uh, all across America just go about with not having fans and media access for a year that until we get a vaccine, there's just no fans in attendance and that could be 18 months, whatever it is. And uh, there's just, we get the new normal is just the limited access. And we've already seen just access go down and down more and more. Um, are you worried about the change in media access uh, going forward? I thought about it that much. I mean, I, um, I've been upset from stories I've been hearing in particular about the NBA uh, the NBA used to be the easiest place to get access to players and, you know, they, they were pretty open to talking and blah, blah, blah. And I do feel like there's been a real downward uh, spiral in regards to sort of access to NBA players. And now you can't just go through a team. You have to go through an agent and the agent wants to know what you're writing about first and then blah, 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 blah. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can give you five minutes here. I keep hearing that. I got five minutes with X player. I got five minutes with him. I got five minutes with him. It could be a star. It could be a scrub. Five minutes. I got seven minutes with him. I wrote this story. How much time did you get with him? I got five minutes to sit down. And um, it's definitely, again, it's all happening at this breakneck speed. But uh, social media has definitely given athletes less of a reason to talk to the press. Because if you're whoever, LeBron or Kawhi, and you want to get something out, you just get it out via social media. So why do I need to speak to X reporter for the Miami Herald? Um, and I do think players will enjoy not having the media around. Uh, players have never enjoyed having media, you know, walking around the locker room, waiting for them by their locker, standing, staring awkwardly at their pads while waiting or their, you know, phones while waiting for a player to show up. So I, I could see leagues and players getting very comfortable with the idea of not having media around. And I can also leagues can see leagues saying uh, in many ways, sports writers are a little obsolete in the modern market. And maybe we just, maybe we have new laws where we can rules or we'll just have a press conference after the game and you can request two players right after the game. And um, cause it does seem like access is, is not getting better. It's getting worse. 
and it's it's hard to see that ever changing like you said it's just there is no retort to lebron being like why do i need you like <laughs> there's no sports writer who can give a a good example as to why using him is good like even lee jenkins with the lebron story lebron didn't even need lee jenkins for that he could have just done it through players tribune and done it stuff or just announced it on social media he didn't need to do that that was kind of it seems like looking back now kind of amazing that he got him to even do it but i i don't know man i just i don't think it's going that way and i think i mean just look at the podcast like all these different athlete centric podcasts where they're like josh hart has his own show and they just talk about stuff like richard jefferson and channing fry they're like instead of just uh coming on zach lowe's podcast what if we just did our own mm-hmm. and we brought in other athletes and we just talked like they're more comfortable talking to other athletes who understand where they're going from rather than just going into situations where it's like the the best case scenario of talking with a good reporter is a neutral outcome for the athlete right <laughs> like yeah. you're just hoping that it's everything comes across okay fine like nothing is worse or better because it's never going to be better like there no one's ever going to look at you better there's never going to be a net positive of giving a lot of time to a reporter it seems like um, i'm reading the book on rick patino right now the last temptation of rick patino and it's a really great book and all this stuff but like all the coverage that he got and just the interviews it's like he he was he was right like it's just these little things and these little quotes are going to come back to haunt you and the limited amount of time you give them just it's going to end up being a negative for most of these guys and they all know that they're like most of the time this is going to end up being a problem for me this is going to get me in trouble montrezl harrell just saying something haphazardly may have just railroaded his entire future in los angeles because of the way he described the team dynamic and got ripped in the locker room about it like those little things and that was just like in a media scrum that wasn't even in like a private conversation with a reporter. I, I just, I don't think that's going, going back. And I, I can't fault the players for just looking at it being like, yeah, no, we're good. It's just, it's sad from a, from a media perspective. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I mean, I, the one thing I'll say is I still think there are writers or there are still athletes out there. It's like, um, it's like, why do we go get a portrait painted of our family? You know, we could just take a picture, but there's something kind of cool about yeah. having a painter to paint a portrait of you. And there are some really beautiful writers. Do you writers. have one in your house? Do you have a Jeff Perlman portrait? Someone no, but I have a, uh, I, I do have a portrait that a painter did of my wife and my daughter that I got it. And That's I just, awesome. yeah, I just think there's something beautiful about a portrait. And, and I do think there are still athletes out there and people out there who, who get a charge or a thrill when someone paints this portrait of their life, you know, and when someone takes the time to dig deep and uh, you're not looking for dirt, you just want to paint the story of who they are and what makes them tick. And um, I did a story a couple of years ago for the athletic actually about a San Diego Chargers defensive back, uh, LA Chargers defensive back named Rayshon Jenkins, who was raised in a really, really bad area of Florida with a zillion brothers and sisters. I think it's 18 brothers and sisters and his hardships and his turmoil and, and, um, no one's going to tell that story because number one, because it's Rayshon Jenkins. He's a backup defensive back. Uh, and number two, it's a really hard story to tell. And so I do think when done well, and when the subjects are picked correctly, uh, this, there's still a value here. And, and I think some people do appreciate it. And maybe, maybe uh, if you're covering the, the Miami heat, Maybe Jimmy Butler doesn't want to give you five minutes. He's tired of telling his story about Marquette and blah, 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 blah. But maybe their, their, their backup point guard who doesn't talk about 
amazing story to be written about him and maybe he wants his portrait painted. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I feel like everything is gray right now because we're in the middle of a virus. We have a nut job president. Nothing's going right in this country. And a lot of people, a good friend of mine just got laid off this morning. I mean, it's freaking so discouraging, but I still, I'm still going to the athletic to read what they have to say. I'm still, I still even go to SI.com to read what people have to say. And I kind of hope other people, there is still something satisfying about reading good writing and there's something enjoyable about reading it. And there's something nice about having portraits painted of you and, and stories written about you when they're, when they're well done and things you can see if your kids and show your relatives. And hopefully there's enough value in that still. I took for granted how great things were when I was in college because I had so much great content. I had so much great sports writing available six, seven years ago where like, it's just amazing to look at my Google sheets now versus then, because like you said, I want to go to those sites. I want to read them every day, but like that was a thing. I could just read them all. They were all available, CBS sports and hardwood paroxysm. And there were so many like indie blogs, like the true hoop network and just being able to read all of those different things. Cause I'm just such a big NBA junkie. Like those are all gone and they're never coming back. And just all of those places where all these great writers are writing, a lot of them writing for free, unfortunately, but like there was no, absence of just amazing sports writing all across the internet and just Grantland, everything like there was just an abundance that i i thought about in the last couple of weeks just because we've had so much time in our hands where like i would kill to have that much quality writing readily available in 2020 but it's just there's so many places that just they don't have it and it's just gone like espn.com i was trying to find bill Connolly because i love his offseason season previews for college football and the way he does them and the way he did it on football study hall on SB nation was clear. They had this stream and it was great and all this stuff. And I loved going, checking it every day with his team by team rankings. The ESPN one, if you click on his byline, it just takes you to his Twitter profile. Like you can't even find his story stream. I like, I'm just trying to find his, like all of his articles so I can read them in order and bookmark them and stuff like that. But that's just not even available. We can't even get the latest content from sports writers anymore. It's driving me insane. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of great writers out there. There really are. There are. And, yeah, and they are available. And, I mean, a good friend of mine is Miran Sater, Bleacher Report. She's writing some great stuff. Uh, Candace, great. Buck, Candace Buckner at the Washington Post is a great writer. Like, there's a lot of, still a lot of great writing. There's still a lot of great books coming out. And it's not, um, I mean, The Athletic is freaking dirt cheap. And there's so many great writers on there and so much great content on there. So, you know, I guess I agree in a way. But I don't actually, I don't necessarily feel like the writing like I could be the old codger who's like, oh, when I was coming up, the writing was so much better. But I actually don't feel like that. I feel like the writing now is excellent. I think there's so many great writers out there right now. I truly do. And the difference is you're just not getting your shit for free anymore. So like, if you want to read Candace Buckner in the Washington Post, right? Or you, you want to, I mean, you still get Bleach Report for free. But if you want to read uh, Tyler Kepner in the New York Times or whatever, Frank Rich in the New York Mags, you got to pay for it. But tough shit, man. That's part of the deal nowadays. And you should have to pay for it because they, they need to feed their kids too. So I think the writing is still strong. I truly do. I think the writing is really good. I just think people want to get their stuff for free. And it's not really fair. I think it's part getting stuff for free, but I also think it's hard to find. So I think everything is so spread out now and writers are writing for so many different places. And like, there's just a lot of, there's a lot more writers than there used to be, I think. But yeah, also, that's a like, good thing. for me, it's hard to find. Like, yeah, it's really but- hard to organize it. I know, but the thing is, like, the beauty of it is, all right, so I do a podcast every week, the writing podcast, and um, mm. 
I have found some amazing writers who I never knew existed. I guess this is the positive of the internet. I'm usually, I'm usually pretty negative about the internet because of the spread of false information and the, you know, whatever. But um, it's driving me crazy. And uh, but but the um, the, the upside is, you know, I had the food writer from the newspaper in Fort Wayne on uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, and um, the guy's amazing. I never knew this is amazing food writer, Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's just insane. So like. I agree with you. It's harder to find whatever it's harder, but there's, there are tons of writers out there, tons of writers who you can actually read. You just gotta, it's a lot, it's more like a, like when I was growing up, my mom used to, we used to shop at Marshall's all the time. And the appeal of Marshall's as opposed to going to a gap or a department store is you have to dig through the racks to find something. And you go through a lot of crap and ugly shirts and a lot of turquoises, but then you find your shirt and you're like, Oh, this is a great shirt. And you appreciate it even more because you had to go through the dig. So, Sometimes you got to go through the dig to find the Fort Wayne writer, but there are a lot of good writers out there. I like that. You have to go through the dig because I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that's true. Um, with the way you write books and just the amount of interviews you do, how does this change for you and your future in, in book writing? The virus or the... Uh, just- the vi- Honestly, both. The virus and just the the access of athletes wanting to talk uh, to you because like Gary Myers of SI who I had on a couple weeks ago, who was just phenomenal. I love talking with him about all kinds of stuff. And he's just, he has just so many stories and so many thoughts about so many different things that I, it was just great. But he talked about like getting only, like you said, the five minutes with whatever he only got like five minutes with Peyton Manning on his book with Brady versus Manning. He got more time with Brady, but like even his book, like that, I very much encourage people to check out. It's a great book. But like he got a very limited amount of time with Peyton, very very limited, and got a lot more with Brady. But like, is that something you're encountering now with your book writing? Uh, actually, not at all. But mainly my books. I do okay. a lot of. It. The thing is, first of all, my philosophy with books has always been just call a million people. So just call and call and call. And if someone gives you five minutes, they give you five minutes. Someone else will give you an hour. And most of my books are sort of nostalgia driven. So I'm not. Um, I'm not needing the modern athlete so much as a guy who played 15, mm. 10, whatever years ago. And usually those people are really excited to talk to you because it's like talking about the greatest time in their life. So for me, I have not found that at all, but I know dealing with the modern athlete, I don't, I mean, at a moment in my career, it's probably six years ago, five years ago, five years ago, I was doing, I was assigned a story on Jimmer Fredette. Jimmer Fredette was playing with the New Orleans Pelicans and I hadn't done an NBA story in a while. It was for Bleacher Report. And I was supposed to meet Jimmer Fredette. They were in LA. I was going to meet him at the team hotel. They were staying. And while getting to the team hotel, the Pelicans publicist called me and said, yes, yeah, so is 10 minutes with Jimmer good? And I was like, 10 minutes? And uh, he's like, yeah, that's, that's the best we can do. And I actually said to him, I said, you know what, man? I'm a, I guess I was 44 at the time. I was like, I'm 44 years old. Uh, I'm not doing this. I'm just, I'm not doing this story. I just, I just don't want to do it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not begging for 10 minutes with a 24 year old kid uh, <laughs> on the New Orleans Pelicans bench. Like I'm just not doing it. And it was a moment for me. It was like a moment of standing up against this bullshit. And I'm sure Jimmer for didn't care. And supposedly he's a really nice guy. I have no beef with Jimmer for but it, it's exasperating, you know? And I think part of the thing I like about writing books about nostalgia is you're not dealing with the 24 year old who's entitled and, you know, his Twitter following is a million times more important than talking to a journalist. Um, so that was my little moment of revolt, me and Jimmy for that. That's wild. Um, 
but also like a lot of those guys i bet you it's not even their call no like just the amount of athletes that i've seen with publicists and everything around them where it's just their circle like it's not even their call i'm sure if the publicist said you need to give this guy 30 minutes jim would have given me 30 minutes instead of 45 45 yeah of course i had um years ago i had uh i wrote a story way before you were uh, aware of this stuff. In 1999, I did a story about a baseball player named John Rocker. And there was a really controversial story in Sports Illustrated. And um, I, later that year, I had to do a story on a Dodgers outfielder named Gary Sheffield. And I called the Dodgers uh, and the publicist said, yeah, Gary doesn't want to talk to you. And I was like, Gary doesn't want to talk to me. I actually know Gary Sheffield. Uh, yeah, he doesn't want to talk to you. And I go out, I just went out on my own to the Dodgers and Sheffield's like, I have no idea. I don't even know where that came from. Of course, I'll talk to you. What's the big deal? And just some, sometimes you, do, you almost find you needed to find a way to sneak past the publicists and the handlers and get the guy on your own terms because usually they're pretty happy right. to talk. Yeah. I agree. And mm-hmm. the athletes that I've talked to, like I think if it was their call, they are more than happy to talk because you know what that people like doing talking about themselves. Of course. People generally like <laughs> that is a natural human impulse. And if there is an avenue or an outlet to do that, they are going to do that. But the people around them are like, no, 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 no. This is a potential fire. We are going to limit your exposure which is what they're basically insurance people. Yeah. Like they're just making sure that it doesn't go worst case scenario. So I understand both sides, but it does still suck. Um, you were like me in that. I love writing in 24 hour diners. I love writing in cafes or chaotic places. And that's been limited obviously for the last month. Yeah. Um, people always think it's crazy because they're like, Oh, why don't you work in coffee shops? I, I hate working in coffee shops because it's more of, I, I need, I need confusion. I need weird sounds. I need to be in, in like an an odd place at two o'clock in the morning when I'm writing. I need that kind of just chaos around me. I need the sounds uh, that coffee shops don't provide because everyone else is solely focused on working, and that like increases anxiety. Is <laughs> the amount of people with earbuds in just being uh, ostensibly. Um, efficient in what they're doing but i don't necessarily believe that most of the time but how did you get involved in that and do you think you write better away from home than you do at home um i mean i don't know if it really makes a difference but i just uh i like the i like the illusion of social interaction you know i don't like mm. uh i don't like being near a, a humming refrigerator and you know sonos playing in the background like i like i like the buzz of it all i like talking to the barista I like chatting with the person next to me. Uh, I like hearing different sounds. Um, sometimes I don't, if there's like a really, really loud talker, it's frustrating. Um, if there's someone, you know, FaceTiming, it drives me crazy, but I just, uh, I like the hum of it all. And I started, I probably started doing that. I used to live in New York city and, um, there was a really cool coffee shop near where I lived on in union square. I just used to like, I just love the scene. You know, you feel stupid but it made me feel like Hemingway a little bit like you're, you're sitting in this world and you're looking you're observing and you're just this writer in a New York City cafe and you got your hot cup of coffee and you're Danish or whatever and you're there till two in the morning and you see life walking by you and you smell things and you see things and, you're, and it just is this something about it I don't know if it makes me more or less productive I've always liked the scene and, and where I live here in California now there's this 24-hour diner that I just love and I love going there and I always order, you know, a Diet Coke, a coffee, and like a turkey burger with fries. It's like the least healthy night of like whatever. <laughs> but it, 
there's just something about the scene that does it for me. It makes me feel sort of like alive and sort of like, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's something about it and talking to the waitress and, and the sounds of silverware and the refill on the water. I don't know. I just had the whole scene just really does it for me. And it feels very sterile when you're writing from home. I'm just researching right now. So I'm not writing. So it's not that big a deal, but, um, yeah, I, I love the diner. I love the smell of a diner. I love everything about a diner. Working diner is the best place in the world. Oh, we're on the same page. We are we are on the same page. Um, but hopefully people who are listening, please do not come in. Don't come to my diner. Be weird to us. Yeah, but <laughs> we are we are this is our thing. But, but please back off. Don't make diners a, a diner I'm older than you, so it's my thing and you took it from me. I just want to say it's my thing. That's that is true. Uh-huh. That is true. So I apologize for stealing your comments. That's okay. Um <laughs> Everybody, sports writers just all uh, going after each other's brands. Um, if you were just looking ahead a couple of years from now, how do you think we're going to look at like how different sports is from before Corona versus after Corona? What do you think are going to be the future lifelong implications of what happened here? Yeah, I'm hopeful that there are none. I really am. I'm hopeful that this, we look back at this as a really dark period in our history and I saw someone in, in New York Magazine wrote recently that it's like, it's one of those periods where 40 years from now, kids would say, God, I'm so happy I didn't, I wasn't around during the coronavirus span, you know? Um, I, I just think, I think more interesting than like what we will look back a decade from now is how we're going to readjust to it. Like, what's it going to be like when they say, okay, you can, we can open stadiums and we can go to games. Are people going to be comfortable just going to a baseball game and, uh, taking a soda from a vendor, you know, or holding the guardrail so you don't trip when you walk down, the, you know, to your seat. Um, are you going to be comfortable being surrounded by 50,000 other Yankee fans, at Yankee stadium and booing the Red Sox, all those kind of things. Are players going to be comfortable? You're, it's your first NBA game back. You're playing the Utah jazz. Are you going to be comfortable guarding whoever sweating on each other, pushing each other, you know, all these little things. It's, it's what fascinates me more than the long term, honestly, is the reacclimation to the way it used to be and how it's going to go over and what it's going to be like and what's it going to be like when, because there are going to be, you know, there are going to be some cave we think it's gone and that's going to pop up here and there and then it could get worse. And are people going to feel comfortable? It's, I, it's, it'll be interesting to see a year from now if it feels normal or if there's still a lot of discomfort with it all. I'm betting there's going to be more discomfort. I, it's crazy, but like when I was at Kroger yesterday, just getting my groceries and everything else, there was um, an elderly elderly woman who walked past me, and it just it messed with me. Like mm-hmm. I don't like it. I moved over and just felt so uncomfortable. Where like I she was so sweet and friendly, and she even like tried to ask me something, and I'm just doing my part to like, oh yeah, just <laughs> you're just doing this analyzing. Am I six feet away? Should I answer quite like it was it was stressful and I don't see that going anywhere. Like being around my grandparents who um, I love a lot, but they're, they're older. They've, they've had both had cancer. They're both at high risk. If they get this and all this stuff, like that makes me extremely uncomfortable. How do like outside of a vaccine, when am I ever going to be comfortable being around them again? It's just because this is asymptomatic and that you can have this and not even know it. And I could pass it on with it. Like, I don't want to feel like I could be potentially responsible for, um, injuring my grandparents. Like I just don't, I don't, and I think that's how a lot of people feel right now is even if we get back to a new normal and all that kind of stuff, I, 
I think a lot of people are still going to be very uncomfortable for years to come. And the big crowd stuff at sporting events, I, I don't know. I like when you hear Jack Swarbeck of Notre Dame, their AD talk about like how he doesn't um, envision a empty list stadium for Notre Dame football games this fall. My whole thing is like, even if you don't like envision it and you allow it, because I think college is more likely to be okay with it than pros, because I think a lot of college kids are, as we've seen in Florida and everywhere else are going to gladly, gladly, especially if school is back in, in the fall, go to these games and get around a bunch of people and all this kind of stuff. But like the older crowd, like I don't see them going And If you're around that, like it's just, you don't have a choice. Even if you open it up, you can't change how people now feel about being around other people. Like I think the social distancing and the isolation is going to like affect how people look at this stuff long-term and like heavy crowds is just going to be like in our subconscious of like, Ooh, this is not good for a long period of time. Uh, it's almost way above my pay grade. I don't even know the answer. I mean, I think we'll probably stop shaking hands and start bumping elbows more. And yeah, I hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. I don't know. I just don't know the answer. To be honest, I could filibuster, but I don't, I don't even know the answer. Um, to kind of transition to your book on the USFL, which I, like I said, I encourage everybody to go check out and read. Um, how did that inform you on how Trump would handle something like this and handle the presidency? Well, I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I knew he was a con man for a long time. Um, the book opened my eyes to just how great of a con man he is and how he's, how ruinous and how poisonous he is. He was a, uh, I was a kid who loved the USFL. I, I knew he sort of destroyed the league. I didn't know the depths to which he went to destroy the league. Um, he's probably the least trustworthy human being I've ever written about. Uh, the most diabolical human I've ever written about. So, uh, I mean, passes prologue with him. I was telling people when that book came out, I was like, you want to know what he's going to be like, or you want to know who he is? Here's, here's who he was. And it's the same. It's the same. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, I swear to God, when I say this, I'm dumbfounded by every day by people. It was like with the USFL, he would do things and the other owners would be like, Oh, it's just Donald being Donald. And then he would do a little more. And it was like, well, it's just Donald being Donald. And then he'd do something even worse. And it'd be like, eh, it's, it's just Donald being Donald. It's not, it's, it's okay. And the gradual beating down of people's sensibilities is something he's been doing for years. And he, uh, I mean, that's what he did with the USFL. He just, he kept hitting and hitting and hitting and the owners kept, well, it's just making allowances, you know, well, it's just this and well, it's just that. And you see it now. I mean, every day people making allowances, making allowances, Republican party, making allowances. It's just this, it's just that you have to understand. It's just this. He's so good at it. And I do feel like I have a PhD in the, uh, in the ways of Trump and the way he plays people, you know, and it's funny. He was never a master businessman. He's a master marketer and he's a master manipulator. And that's ruined the USFL. When you saw the XFL was coming back and being led by Vincent Mann, who I think has a lot of similarities to Donald Trump, um, do you think the XFL will work where the USFL didn't? Granted, like a lot of the current stuff changes a lot of that stuff, but like, what are you seeing as the differences, and how does the XFL avoid the same fate as the USFL? I mean, I think the biggest problem. First of all, Vince McMahon, he's despicable, but he's no Trump. I mean, Trump is a million times worse. And I would take Vince McMahon in a second over Donald Trump, and I can't stand Vince McMahon. Um, the thing about the, the XFL, the XFL did some smart things as far as seasonal and sort of the, the rules of play and 
Andrew uh, uh, Oliver Luck, Andrew Luck's dad, who's a really good guy, is running the league, and, and that's a good good move. The big thing they have going against them is that the NFL is a is a twelve month a year endeavor now. You know, when the USFL came along, the NFL was seasonal. That's how you thought of it. It's a seasonal thing. All right, it's football season. Let's talk about the NFL. Now, you have the draft, you have the combine, you have fantasy, you have a 24-hour network. So it's just, I think, an impossibility um, to have a, a viable football league against, you know, that's not the NFL. I just don't think people, I just don't think people need it. You know, I don't think people want to watch Breed be football because they miss the NFL. Because the NFL, you can, the NFL is always now. It's just always. There's always a replay of a game on. There's always people analyzing stuff. So I think it's doomed to fail, not really by fault of their own, but just by the, the landscape of football in America. Yeah, I um, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I very much enjoyed having it on the weekends. I think there was a growing, like, kind of like a contingent where it was just like this cool indie thing that people liked and kind of reminded me of pro wrestling, smaller promotions like um, Ring of Honor, New Japan, where you're like, this is clearly not the top end thing. You're not getting the top end talent, but it's still an enjoyable thing of this mate, this sport that we that we love. So at least we're getting more content. Um, for you, who was the toughest interview you've ever done? I mean, there have been a lot of them. I mean, I wrote a book about Barry Bonds, and he was impossible to deal with. He was just really mean human being, not a very nice guy. Barry, what kind of human being? Mean. A mean, not a good guy. Yeah, just a mean, just a mean person who went out of his way to make your life harder. Uh, Will Clark. Do you think that? Do you think that permeated throughout like his relationships on and off the field? Do you think he was just like all over? He was a dick. He was a dick to everybody. He was not a good father. He was. He was an asshole. He was not a nice person. And he went out of his way to make your life harder. Uh, that's a special attribute. You don't find that many people like that who actually, they go out of their way to make your life more difficult. And they take pleasure in making your life more difficult. Um, he did that to writers all the time. He did that to the staff of the Giants. Uh, he did it to teammates. He's the worst. He's the worst. He actually reminds me of Trump in some ways where he got away with a lot of stuff just because he walked on top of people and he, he intimidated people by just walking past them, by staring past them, by having these expectations of them. Um, in fact, there's no close second. He was by far the worst athlete I've ever dealt with in my life. And I wrote a book on him. That's interesting. I have a baseball card, a Barry Bonds, like a uh, second or third year baseball card that I actually used in my bookmark that mm-hmm. my um, that my dad gave me a long time ago. It's just always been. Um, and Bonds, he's back in the news because he was trying to make amends and all that kind of stuff. I wonder if he's just reflected on everything and kind of changed in recent years. What do you think? I think you like, once you're not, a, there's, the, the, the former athlete, the retired athlete is oftentimes a very sad specimen. And he treated people like shit for so long. I mean, he just, Again, he was the worst. And here he is now. He's not in the Hall of Fame. He doesn't have a job in baseball. Um, you're in your, I don't know what he is now, probably 50, uh, 50-something. And nobody gives a crap about you anymore. Yeah, you sign autographs, but nobody really cares anymore. You're like a superhero without your power. And it's a very hard place to be. So I'm sure he's feeling glum and remorseful and unwanted and disposed of. And maybe he's having second thoughts on the way he behaved, which, which is good. I don't, I don't, the funny thing is I don't harbor any grudge against him. I don't, I don't root against him. I don't want his life to be miserable. I just do think you reap what you sow and all those years of being so awful to so many people 
he's kind of reaped what he showed. If you had to spend 30 minutes interviewing John Rocker in his prime or Barry Bonds in his prime, who would you pick? I would take Bonds because he's far more intelligent than Rocker's is. <laughs> so I'll take the smart guy over the other. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And as an Atlanta guy, the Rocker stuff is still just, I don't think people, people really just need to revisit some of those quotes and just the entire mm-hmm. situation there and all that. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. Um, on the flip side, on a more positive note, who would you say you enjoyed covering and talking to the most? Oh, there were so many guys. Um, my favorite athlete was a backup catcher named Sal Fasano, who played for a long time. Mm. He was just a decent human being. The coach of the Braves now, actually. Um, I was a fan. I was always a fan of the like catchers, like Brian Johnson, and you know, um, I don't know. I mean. I think there was just a lot of Tory Hunter. I always enjoyed Tory Hunter. I always like Gary Sheffield, Sean Green, um, Homer Bush. You know, like random guys who just like were nice a lot of baseball guys. Like I mainly covered baseball sports. I would say that. So my that was mainly my beat. And um, yeah, I just I mean, along the way you, you meet a lot of genuinely decent people. You remember the jerks like Barry Bonds was a superstar and he was a jerk, but most of the people especially realize now away from it, we're just guys trying to stick in the major leagues and make it and, and have a career. And they were no different. You, you thought of them at the time when I was a young writer, I think I was somewhat intimidated by them. And then you realize later they're just guys and they're wearing the pajamas and you're not, and they're just people trying to make a living and uh, you know, they're insecure and they're, they're fighting for their careers. And um, yeah, I met a lot of really good people covering, covering, covering sports. I did. Which current athlete do you suspect would have the most interesting story for you to cover uh, in a book or just in a in a piece? Maybe the, the athletic. Who would you who would you I, look at? For that? I think LeBron. I think there's a great story there. Mm. I think LeBron is an amazing story. I think he's. I love guys who are unafraid to speak out. I think he'd be a really fascinating guy to write about at some point. I mean, there have been books on him, but um, I got I have nothing but respect for that guy. Uh, nothing but respect for that guy. And also, if you can get in the head of Kawhi Leonard. And he would actually open up. There might be some really interesting mm. stuff in there, but those two guys are probably the, the first two come to mind. Basketball guys, not baseball guys. But I love the NBA. I just didn't cover it that much. Yeah. Um, with baseball coming back, did you read the Jeff Passan stuff about the Arizona idea? What What do you think of that? Um, I think if they if it can be safe, I think. I mean. I literally yesterday was watching a slug outside of my house walk across the cement. So if there's a way okay. they can make baseball safe or make it safe that we can watch on TV, I'm kind of desperate right now. I'm like, uh, <laughs> and I, I haven't watched that much baseball lately in the past few years, but if there's a way they can make it happen and make it safe, I think I'm in favor of it. If they can do it, if it's possible, I'm in favor of it. It seems like the rapid testing is the biggest thing and that they're being smart about, like making sure all the hospitals have it and they're not going to be needing it and things like that before they get started. It's going to be weird, but I, I am very interested to see the contrast uh, between how college football and pro football responds to this come August, September. Yeah. I, I think the NFL is happening no matter what, like the amount of money and power. Like I love that the story that came out of the Trump call with all the commissioners was just like what he's like what they said about the NFL starting on time. That's how much power the NFL has. Like not even the sports leagues that are literally 
in should be happening right now. They didn't get any main publicity out of it. It was the NFL is going to start on time. Like that was the main takeaway from a call with all sports commissioners. That was like my first thought. I was like, this is weird because it wasn't just like he was talking to Goodell. He was talking to everybody. And all that came out was like, the NFL was like, hey, we're number one here. And we need a uh, confirmation that this is happening because this we make we're just head and shoulders above everybody else. I I think it's happening just without fans, but college can't do that because so much of the athletic budget comes from the gates. And just reading Iowa State's AD, who this is a good piece in the athletic uh, a couple of days ago that I read, where it's just like a lot of college sports will just disappear if there's no college football this fall. Like, even if you do the no fan stuff it doesn't help because the majority of the money needs to, it's not like the television deals like in major league baseball where you get the regional money and just putting on TV, like all these networks are going to be fighting over it. You're not getting that money uh, for college. And those universities are just going to cut a bunch of sports and they'll just never come back because it's going to take so long for them to get money. And they're already having to take out loans and figure out stuff for the fall and the spring and all this stuff. The difference between how college football responds versus the NFL is going to be fascinating because I think we're getting the NFL, but I don't think we're getting college football because these college football ADs and just like Dabo flying around to his private uh, whatever. And just, it seems like a very different response. And I, I don't know, man, it's like the subplot that unfortunately I'm very much interested in for the course of the summer, but I, I don't know. Like, I think the contrast between the impact of how the, the coronavirus affects college sports for the future versus the NFL is, is interesting. I'm going to be honest. I just don't give a shit. I just, as an <laughs> I'm being serious. I just don't, I haven't given it one second of thought. I just don't care. I, um, it's like, uh, I probably would have cared 20 years ago. I mean, I got two kids to raise, you know, I see a country really struggling. I see an election coming up. I see a, a lot of people sick. I worry about my parents being able to go grocery shopping. Um, I just don't give a shit. I know that sounds horrible. I just don't care if they have college football or not. I don't even watch college football anymore. Like, I don't care. I think the NFL thing, I think the Trump is, Trump's call with the commissioners is a freaking joke. But the idea that this guy has any say on any of this stuff, it just infuriates me. And it's insane. And there all those people in that room, all those people on that conference call were more accomplished than him. That's a crazy thing at all. They're all more accomplished. I'm sure they're all more intelligent. I'm sure they're all more savvy to business. And this guy, this fool who ruined a freaking football league is the guy calling the shots and leading this meeting. It's nut job insane crazy. So it's hard for me to really care about college, you know, college and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I, I just, I'm in such a state of shock over this country right now that the minutia about like when college football, when the NFL are going to start is like ranks number 973,205 on my priority list after whether my slug is going to win his race across the concrete. Is he still going the slug? I'm sure he is because they move very slow. I, I've heard, I've heard. Um, yeah. Last thing, and then we'll wrap up here, Jeff. If a young sports writer emailed you today and asked your opinion, like they're in college, they're trying to pick their major and they were like, I want to, make a go of this sports writer thing. Would you encourage them to do so? And then if so, what would you tell them to do? So when I was a kid, I told my mom, I wanted to be a sports writer. And uh, she said, you need to be realistic. Uh, So did my mom. There you go. That's what she said. Be realistic. And um, my mom's an accountant. She lives in realville as my mother and father say all the time. Yeah. Well, my mom was a probation officer. So, um, and I, um, it's been the greatest career. It's been a joy and it's, 
It's harder than ever. I would say one thing is, I hate the term, but it's true, is be a content creator. Don't just focus on writing. Uh, focus on podcasting. Focus on digital. Be all around. Make yourself as necessary as possible and make yourself as useful as possible. And being a journalist these days might mean writing for MLB.com or might mean being a producer for the NFL Network or might mean a million different things. But there's still opportunities. There. I would never tell anyone. If my kid told me she wanted to go on Broadway, I would never tell her not to pursue that. And I feel like being a journalist has become, or a sports writer, it's become a little, it's not as easily attainable, but it's, it's more attainable than being uh, an actress on Broadway. So I would certainly tell my kids to pursue their dreams and I would tell anyone to go for it. It's just hard and be prepared for hardship. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. The last part is be prepared for hardship because as someone in their late 20s still doing this, like it's hard. You have to sacrifice a lot. You have to take a lot of crap. You have to deal with a lot of failure. And it's it. not everyone has a stomach for it. And I totally understand why some writers are just like, nope, I'm just going to go in PR now. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm over this. Like, I, yeah. I get it. Yeah, I don't begrudge anyone for that. It's fair. Jeff, this has been great. I very much appreciate the time you've given me today. Um, is there anything that we should check out from you this week or anything that you would like to um, tell our, our listeners before we get out of here? Yeah, my uh, my slug is still racing across the concrete. I just looked out the door, so he's doing quite well. Can you really see him? Yeah. And uh, he's, a, awesome. he's a snail, though, not a slug. And um, I don't have a book coming out in September called uh, Three Ring Circus about the, the Lakers of 9604. That's about Ooh. it. Okay. Do I yeah. get a signed Jeff Perlman copy? I mean, if you send me a hundred bucks, it could be yours. hundred bucks? hundred yeah. bucks? Okay. hundred yeah. bucks for the Jeff. <laughs> I, I like it. It brings everything full circle. Pay writers and uh, exactly. pay for autographs. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate the time and we will have to talk again soon. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, It helps the show continue to grow, and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, You can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. For as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. You could go to ChaseThomasPodcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need, um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.